The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight, we're going to be looking at a really thrilling section, uh, which is on page 90 through 110 of the paperback version that I sold to you guys, and uh, on page 132 of my version, and I have no idea what what page on that, but we're starting right after Faithful's Martyrdom, uh, picking up with Christian traveling um, with Hopeful, and we've got a lot of things to cover tonight, so I'm going to go ahead and get started and reward those of you that are here right on time. And uh, we'll go ahead and start. Now, after uh, when we last left Christian, um, he was where? Where where was Christian and Faithful when we last saw them? They were in Vanity Fair. And what, Roger, is Vanity Fair? What was that all about? Well, that, of course, characterizes the entire journey. <laughs> but what unique trials and tribulations did they meet with him? Trials and tribulations brought on by worldly stuff. And uh, what happened to uh, Christian and Faithful as they went in there? What did they want to do with Vanity Fair? What was their desire? They had one desire and only one. They want to get through it, and that's it. They just want to get on through and just be left alone. But the world wouldn't do it. And they came up to them for three reasons, as you remember. Their uh, clothes were, were different, their conversation was different, and they wouldn't buy any of their stuff. And they started to tick people off, and so they wouldn't leave them alone. And it ultimately led, tragically, but uh, gloriously, to Faithful's martyrdom as they um, executed him. And that's where we ended up last time. Um, but a beautiful statement of the sovereignty of God um, uh, at the very end of the account. It says that Christian had some respite and was remanded back to prison. And so there he remained for a space. But he that overrules all things, having the power of their rage in his own hand, so wrought it about that Christian for that time escaped them and went his way. Now, what is Bunyan saying there? First of all, who overrules all things? Who does Bunyan mean? Well, that's God. God overrules all things. And then he says, he who has their rage in his hand. Who's he referring to? What is he talking about? God. All right, God has whose rage in his hand? Rulers of vanity. Rulers of vanity, of vanity and, uh, that have just executed faithful. Is that true, that God held their rage in his hand? In that sense, he was sovereign over it. He controlled it. He could shut it down if he wanted to. Is that a true statement? Well, absolutely it's true. And by that way, Christian is able to make his escape. Christian no less faithful, no less committed to God didn't love the Lord any less than faithful. The whole trial focused on faithful and not on Christian. If Christian had been asked the same questions, he would have given the same answer, but he was just not the focus, and it was faithful who died. Now, let me ask you a question. There's some complexities there, isn't there? Does, did God overrule their rage toward faithful or just toward Christian? Well, what would Bunyan say? Josh, what would Bunyan say? Did God overrule? Was he in charge of their rage toward faithful? Yes. 
because Bunyan said God overrules all things. And that includes faithful. And it says in the scripture, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It was not some accident. God wasn't up there frustrated and said, do you see what's happening? What can we do? Do we have any cavalry that can come over the hill? He's not like that. It was time for faithful to die. And God poured him out. Paul says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time has come for my departure. That's it. And uh, so he blessed faithful. He just had a chariot waiting for him, you know, and up he went. But Christian continues. And that's where we pick up. Now, I saw in my dream that Christian went not forth alone. For there was one whose name was hopeful, being made so by beholding of Christian and faithful in their words and behavior, who joined himself unto him and entering into a brotherly covenant told him that he would be his companion. So Christian is immediately joined on his pilgrimage by someone else named Hopeful. And apparently he is made hopeful, he is converted by watching Christian and Faithful and how they carry themselves. You know, it's not just that we go through trials, it's how we go through trials that God seeks to put on display. And so Christian and Faithful carry themselves with great patience toward their persecutors. And so they want at least one convert, Hopeful. Now, what's very interesting right from the start, if you look at this, it says that Hopeful joined himself unto Christian and entered into a brotherly covenant with him. That uh, told him that he would be his companion. What does that mean, a brotherly covenant with Christian? What is he talking about there? What is a covenant? It's an agreement between two or more persons. That's right. Brotherly covenant. What do you think that might refer to, members of First Baptist Church? A covenant to be brothers together in the Lord. Could it have anything to do with church membership? Could it have anything to do with we're going to walk this journey together? We're going to be side by side. We're going to hold each other accountable. We're going to help each other. And we're going to see that huge in this section here. At one point, Christian saves hopeful. At another point, hopeful saves Christian. And that's exactly what's going to go on in this story. Christian is going to save hopeful from Demas and from the filthy lucre, the hill lucre. Because he's tempted. He wants to go up and look. And he would have gotten in huge trouble there. Hopeful ultimately saves Christian in Doubting Castle. I mean, it's just his determination to be hopeful that gets him through that. And that's that brotherly covenant we're going to see. We need to be members of a good church, don't we? We need to be involved in a covenant fellowship with people. And what do I mean by covenant? I mean serious. Well, we know we're walking this road together. We take it seriously. If somebody's drifting off, we don't say, oh, well, haven't seen so-and-so in a while, have you? No, well, well, easy come, easy go. We don't have that attitude. We have an attitude like, hey, everybody's important and we're going to reach out. We're going to be committed one to another. That's the very covenant that we read every time we have new members join. We're going to watch over one another in brotherly love. So I thought I would just pause at this outset here. And when I talk about hopeful and Christian joining together in brotherly covenant, underscore that for you. Because that's exactly the way that Bunyan understood church uh, commitment as well. He was a member of a Baptist church, uh, committed uh, to his congregation. They prayed for him. They cared for his wife and his daughter and children and uh, watched, watched out for him and cared for him. And so he also in covenant with them. All right, so they continue. Now, Christian and Hopeful continue. And as they go along, they uh, look ahead up on the journey and they see a man named Bayens up ahead of them. Now, Bayens just doesn't communicate to us. But suppose his name were Ulterior Motives. 
Would that covenant, would that communicate to you? What do you think of when you think of ulterior motives? What does that mean when somebody has ulterior motives? Buy ends equals ulterior motives. I think we use this expression, ulterior motives, to mean it's he's not what he appears. He's wanting something other than what he presents himself to be. And so this has to do with somebody who wants to be a Christian for something that they can gain from it in this world. And that's what we're going to find from Bayans. Bayans is Mr. Ulterior Motives. So they see this man, Bayans, and they ask him where he's from. What country are you from? How far are you going on this way? And he told them that he came from the town of Fair Speech and that he was going to the Celestial City, but told them not his name. From Fair Speech, said Christian, is there any good that lives there? Bayans answered, yes, I hope. <laughs> Christian said, pray, sir, what may I call you? Bayans answered, I am a stranger to you and you to me. If you be going this way, I shall be most glad of your company. If not, I must be content. So he does not answer their question. He's not going to say what his name is. What's your name? Well, my name's Ulterior Motives. All right? He's not going to tell him that. So he hides his name. Uh, then Christian says to um, Faithful, this town of fair speech, he says, I've heard of. I'm sorry, to, uh, to Hopeful. I've heard of, and as I remember, they say it is a wealthy place. Yes, said Bayans, I will assure you it is. And I have very many rich kindred there. Many wealthy relatives. Uh, pray, says Christian, who are your relatives there, if a man may be so bold? Bayan said, well, actually, almost the whole town. And in particular, my Lord Turnabout, my Lord Time Server, my Lord Fairspeech, from whose ancestors that town first took its name, also Mr. Smooth Man, Mr. Facing Both Ways, Mr. Anything, and the parson of our parish, Mr. Two Tongues was my mother's own brother by father's side. And to tell you the truth, I am become a gentleman of good quality. Yet my great-grandfather was but a waterman looking one way and rowing another, and I got most of my estate by the same occupation. So these names are always interesting, aren't they? Basically, all of these people, my favorite's Mr. Smooth Man, um, these are people that uh, enjoy religion as long as it's popular. They like to kind of go with the flow. They like to face both ways, you know? They can fit in well with one or with the other. They do very well in any group. All right? Well, we'll, we'll get to know them a little bit better um, as they go on. Christian asks, are you a married man? Yes, he says, and my wife is a very virtuous woman, the daughter of a virtuous woman. She was my lady Feigning's daughter. Feigning means fakery. She's trickery, all right? And I love these names. And therefore, she came of a very honorable family and has arrived to such a pitch of breeding that she knows how to carry it all, even to prince and peasant. She can get along with anybody. It is true, listen to this, we somewhat differ in religion from those of the stricter sort, yet, by, uh, yet but in two small points. First, we never strive against wind and tide. Secondly, we are always... Uh, most zealous when religion goes in his silver slippers. We love much to walk with him in the street if the sun shines and the people applaud him. Okay, now first of all, he said that his great-grandfather and that he himself made his money by rowing. All right, so they're facing one way and rowing the opposite way. And this is the way that people would travel up and down the Thames River, for example. If you ever saw, um, what was, was that movie uh, that I love, Christy, that, about Henry VIII and all that? Um, 
doesn't matter. Anyway, so they're rowing up and down, uh, Man of All Seasons, Man for All Seasons, a great movie. Anyway, they row up and down the Thames River. That's how they travel. And so his father was a rower. So he'd face one way and row the opposite direction. He says, this is the way we are about religion. We don't go if wind and tide is against us. All right? It's too hard. So we'll pull the boat up on the shore and wait until situations are favorable. And once they're favorable, we will continue to make progress in our pilgrimage. That's about what he's saying. So we're not going to, we're, we're not going to strive against wind and, and tide. And secondly, we are very zealous when religion goes in his silver slippers and when he walks in the street with the sun shining and the people applauding him. In other words, we will, we will be religious if it suits us well in this world. But once it starts going amiss, we're going to stop. That's what he's saying. Well, at one point, at this moment, Christian stops and says something to Hopeful. says, you know, I think I know who this guy is. He hadn't told us his name yet, but I think this is one by-ends from fair speech. And if so, he's a knave. We don't want to travel with him. We don't want to walk with him. Uh, and so uh, let's see if we can find out who he is. And he says, don't, uh, isn't it true that your name is by-ends? He says, well, actually, some people call me that. But uh, it's very unfair. It's a, it's a slanderous name. And he says, well, didn't you ever give uh, people an occasion to call you this name? He said, never. Um, he said, the worst that I ever did to give them the occasion to give me this name was that I always had the luck to jump in my judgment with the present way of the times, whatever it was. And my chance was to gain or to get thereby. In other words, I was able to kind of put my finger on the pulse of popular uh, opinion. And I did very well by doing that. So that's why they called me ulterior motives, all right, Mr. Byens. But it actually isn't true. I really um, am not that way. Well, Christian says, if you will go with this, he says, I want to travel with you along the road. I want you to be partners with me. We can journey together. And Christian says, fine. If you'll go with us, you must go against wind and tide, which I perceive is against your opinion. You must also own religion in his rags as well as in his silver, silver slippers. And you must stand by him too when he is bound in irons as well as when he walks the streets in applause. In other words, the, tra the, the journey we're going to make, it's not always going to be easy. You're going to have to go against wind and tide and it's not always going to be popular or profitable to you to do so. And that's what he said. Bayan says, you must not impose nor lord it over my faith. Leave me to my liberty and let me go with you. Not a step further, said Christian, unless you will do in what, we, what I propound as we. Then said Bayan's, I shall never desert my old principles since they are harmless and profitable to me. In other words, this is the way I'm going to do my Christianity. As long as things are going well and I can gain by being a Christian in this world, I'll keep going. But once it starts being difficult, I'm not going to abandon my principles. Well, at that point, Christian and Hopeful say, see you later. <laughs> okay? You walk by yourself, we're going to walk by ourselves. Okay? Bunyan was part of a separatist group, and they just did not involve themselves with people who would do religion this way. And so, Bayans drifts back, and he doesn't really want to walk with them either. Well, after a little while, three men come and join Bayans. They look back and they walk, watch, and these three men and they, uh, join Bayans, and they bow down to him and give him a compliment and the men's name men's names were number one mr hold the world number two mr money love and mr save all these are his friends from fair speech it turned out that he went to school with them and they were taught by a schoolmaster named mr gripe man uh, who lived in love gain uh, which is a market town in the in the in the county of coveting 
Now, this master taught them that the art of gain, either by violence or flattery, lying, putting on guise of religion, these four gentlemen had attained much of the art of their masters so that they could each of them have opened a school themselves. So the point is they're very good at this kind of religion at this point, and the four of them are going to travel along together, and they're going to have a very interesting and important conversation. As they look up the road, they say, who are those two guys up there, Christian and Hopeful? Well, they're two pilgrims. Well, why don't they walk with us? Well, they don't want to walk with us, he said. We wanted to walk with them, but the men before us are so rigid and love so much of their own opinions and do so lightly esteem the opinions of others uh, that let a man never be so godly. Yet if he jumps not with them in all things, they thrust him quite out of their company. Well, Saval says, that is bad. But we read of some that are righteous overmuch, too righteous, too religious, okay? And we don't want to be with them. And such men's rigidness uh, prevails with them to judge and condemn all but themselves. But I pray, what and how many were the things wherein you differed? How did you disagree with them? And then Bayans answered, why? They are after their headstrong manner conclude that it is their duty to rush on in their journey in all weathers. And I'm for waiting for wind and tide. They're for hazarding all for God at a clap. And I am for taking all advantages to secure my life and my estate. I want to be sure that things are going well economically for me. I want to be cautious materially, right, financially. So he says, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm, for, I'm for being cautious. They are for holding their notions, even though all other men are against them. But I am for religion in what and so far as the times and my safety will bear it. I'm not going to risk anything for this thing. They are for religion when in rags and contempt, but I am for him when he walks in his golden slippers in the sunshine and with applause. Mr. Hold the World says, rah, rah, you got it. That's exactly right. And he gives examples. He says, for example, Abraham and Solomon and Job got wealthy in religion. So why can't we get wealthy by being religious? We have to be wise as serpents. We have to make hay while the sun shines. And so he says, I think you've got it exactly right. But at one point, Mr. Byan says, since we're going to walk along the road, why don't we have a conversation and try to figure this thing out? I'm going to put a case to you. Suppose a man, a minister, a tradesman, etc., should have an advantage lie before him to get the good blessings of this life. You can just stop right there. This is exactly the issue. This is what we're talking about right here. The good blessings of this life. This is what buy-ins is all about. And religion sometimes is one of them. Do you see what I'm talking about? Religion can be one of the good blessings of this life. So also is material wealth, comfortable clothing, a good house, a secure job. These things are also good blessings of this life. You see? But ultimately there's going to be a hierarchy of values, isn't there? And so they will pitch... They will evict religion if it starts to cost them in the other areas of the good things of this life. That's exactly what's going on here. So he's going to put a case for them. Suppose a man, a minister on one hand, or a tradesman on the other, should have an advantage that lies before him to get the good blessings of this life, yet so as that he can by no means come to them except in appearances at least, he becomes extraordinarily zealous in some points of religion that he meddled not with before, may he not use this means to, attend his, to attain his end and yet be a right, honest man. Now, what is he saying? Suppose he's got an opportunity before him, and the only way he can get that for himself is to become very religious. 
even though up to that point he's not really been religious. Can't he, in effect, put on religion for a while, get the thing he wants to get, and still be an honest man? What do you all think? <laughs> well, he might be an honest man, but he's not a Christian, okay? And that's what we're going to get to in a moment. But that is a significant case. Mr. Moneylove answers the question. Now, listen to what Mr. Moneylove says. I see the bottom of your question. And with these gentlemen's good leave, I will endeavor to shape you an answer. And first to speak to your question as it concerns a minister himself. We're talking about a pastor now, okay? What about a minister? What if a minister does that? Suppose a minister, a worthy man, possessed but a very small benefice. What does this mean? Well, in the Anglican system, he was in a small parish. That meant his salary was what? Small, okay? He's in a small parish with a small salary, okay? And he has uh, in his eye a greater, more fat, and plump by far church, okay? This is called the, higher, you know, the ladder climbing in the ministry. It happened even back then, okay? So he's got a possibility, an opportunity, an opening. He has now an op- opportunity of getting it, Yet so as by being more studious, by preaching more frequently and zealously, and because the temper of the people requires it, by altering some of his principles. What is that about? Well, maybe, you know, don't teach on that. Don't say anything about the other. That's not popular. That might cut the wrong way. All right, by preaching more frequently and zealously, and by altering some of his principles. For my my part, I see no reason... But a man may do this, provided he has a call, I, and more, a great deal besides, and yet still be an honest man. And then he gives his reasons. You want to know what his reasons are? Could there be any reasons? I'm wondering that. But anyway, let's find out what his reasons are. Number one, his desire of a greater benefice, that means a bigger, more wealthy church, is lawful. This cannot be contradicted because it is set before him by providence. Now, stop and think about what he's saying there. He's saying it's, it's okay for him to get a bigger church because he has the opportunity to do so. Is everything that's set in front of you godly and right and good? I think some of them are called temptations. <laughs> but because he has the opportunity to do so, it is lawful and he can do it. And he may gain that bigger church if he can, make no question for his conscience sake. Number two. His desire after that larger church makes him more studious, a more zealous preacher, and so makes him a better man. Yea, makes him improve in all his parts, which is according to the mind of God. So greed is good. Good things come from being greedy. He improves as a preacher. He works harder, right? Because he's going after something. Number three. Now, as for his complying with the temper of his people by dissenting to serve them some of his principles... This argueth, number one, that he is of a self-denying temper. Number two, of a sweet and winning deportment. And so, number three, more fit for the ministerial function. What is going on there? He's saying, well, if he's willing to compromise his, his, his values, his principles, he's willing to throw out things that were previously important to him, it shows, first of all, that he's a go-along-to-get-along kind of guy, right? He's, he's got a winning deportment. He's popular. People like him, you see? And he gets along well. He's of a sweet... And also, he's proven that he can deny himself. You see, those principles were just important to him, but he's willing to lay them aside so that he can get along with people. And so, therefore, he's more fit for the ministerial function. Now, who's saying all this, by the way? This is Mr. Moneylove. So, at any rate, this is Mr. Moneylove's advice for ministers. I conclude, then, that a minister that changes a small for a great 
should not for so doing be judged as covetous, but rather since he is improved in his parts and industry thereby, be counted as one that pursues his call and the opportunity put into his hand to do good. So he's dealt with the minister question. Now how about the tradesman question? This is the business question. All right, now to the second part of the question concerning the tradesman you mentioned. Suppose such a man would have a poor employee in the world. In other words, he's got a low salary, not a good job. Okay, things aren't going well for him. But by becoming religious, he may mend his market, perhaps get a rich wife, okay, or more and far better customers to his shop. For my part, I see no reason but that this may be lawfully done. Why? Number one, to become religious is a virtue by whatever means you may become so. For whatever your motives in becoming more religious, that's a good thing. That's his first reason. Number two, nor is it unlawful to get a rich wife or more customers to the shop. That's not a bad thing, is it? And then number three, besides, the man that gets these by becoming religious gets that which is good of them that are good by becoming good himself. So then here is a good wife and good customers and good gain and all these by becoming religious, which is good. Therefore, to become religious, to get all these is a good and profitable design. How many word good in there? And, and you know what they say? Well, good speech, good answer. Well, well answered. The whole thing just reeks, doesn't it? Isn't it awful? Do you know what the Apostle Paul said? If for this life only we have trusted in Christ, what? We're to be pitied above all men. Why? Because there's not actually a lot of this stuff for Paul. When you stop and think about it, what, what, what comprised Paul's life in this earth once he became a Christian? Hard work, sleepless nights, hunger, persecutions, difficulties. Read Second, Second Corinthians and you'll know what his life was like. Very, very tough. Now, take a minute. We're going to interrupt just for a minute so we get the scriptures. Look at 1 Corinthians uh, with me for a moment. And you'll see how Paul deals with this. I believe that the Corinthians were struggling with this very issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. There is in the Christian life always, always, always a temptation to want to improve your situation in this world. You know, up, 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 all the time. God, it seems, is frequently calling us the opposite way, right? Look at Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you see the downward slope of Philippians 2? That's, it's going down. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. But not necessarily in this world. Not necessarily in this world. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 8. Beginning at verse 8, it says there, Already, he's talking to the Corinthians now, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. How I wish, wish you really had become kings, so that we could be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Now look at verse 14. 
I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you. Let me ask you a question. You look at verse 14, do you see that? I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you. What is he warning about? What is the warning here? 1 Corinthians 4. Not on Pilgrim's Progress right now. I'm asking about 1 Corinthians 4. What is the warning? How do the Corinthians think wrongly about the Christian life in this world? And then Paul's trying to correct here. Josh, what is he... What? Yeah, they wanted to be kings. He said, you're already kings and we're scum of the earth. Do you notice a wide discrepancy? Do you see how our lives are and how your lives? You're going up, up, up. We're going down, down, down. And of those two, do you sense that Paul thinks that he's on the right track? That after all of that, he says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you. Please come back and understand the Christian life right. And it has to do with our understanding of what you get in this life as a Christian. We Americans have a hard time with this, don't we? We have a real hard time with this. And that's why I think this little discourse with buy-ins and with all these guys is so needed for us today. Because there are many that like religion when he walks in his silver slippers <laughs> and when the wind is at his back and the sun in his face. All right, But it isn't always going to be that way. It isn't always going to be that way. Well, anyway, they think that buy-ins has given a great answer and money, love, and all that. So they want to go pose the question to Christian. They think that Christian and hopeful have no possible answer because it totally lines up with reason. It makes sense what they've said. Why not be religious if by being religious we can also get some good things in this world, right? So... They go to Christian, and this is what Christian says. Even a babe in religion may answer 10,000 such questions. For if it be unlawful to follow Christ for loaves, as in the 6th of John, how much more abominable is it to make of him and religion a stalking horse to get and enjoy the world? Nor do we find any other than heathens, hypocrites, devils, and witches that are of this opinion. First, heathens. I mean, this is typical Puritan here. They made a list, and then he fills it in. First, heathens. Hamor and Shechem got circumcised. You remember the story from Genesis? Why did Hamor and Shechem and their whole village get circumcised? So that they could get Jacob's daughter for the son and all of Jacob's possessions for themselves. That's what they said. So by being circumcised, by becoming religious, they would be able to gain in this world. All right, so heathens think this way. Secondly, hypocrites. The hypocrit hypocritical Pharisees were also of this religion. Long prayers were their pretense, but to get widows' houses was their intent. And greater damnation from God was their judgment. Number three, Judas the devil was also of this religion. He was religious for the bag, <laughs> that he might be possessed of what was therein. But when he was lost, cast away, but he was lost, cast away in the son of perdition. In other words, what do you think attracted Judas to stay with the group? Do you ever wonder why Jesus gave him the money bag? Think about it. I mean, did Jesus not know that Judas was helping himself to what was in it? Of course he knew. Then why did he give him charge over the money? Yeah. Why would Judas leave and not be Jesus' disciple anymore? There'd be no earthly reason to do it. And Judas was an earthly person, wasn't he? So there had to be some earthly motive to keep Judas interested in sticking with Jesus. And so Jesus gives him the money bag, right? And keeps him on. And ultimately, what is it that leads him to betray Jesus? His 30 pieces of silver, right? And then number four, Simon the witch, 
uh, was of this religion too, for he would have had the Holy Ghost that he might have gotten money uh, therewith. And his sentence from Peter's mouth was according. Neither will it out of my mind, said Christian, that that man that takes up religion for the world will throw away religion for the world. Do you hear that? If you pick it up to get worldly things, if the world says that religion's hindering you, you can get further in the company if you leave it off, what's he going to do? He's going to throw it aside. He's going to get rid of it because it's the world he really wants. It's the world he really wants. And so that's why Judas sold his, uh, his master for 30 pieces of silver. Well, after this interaction, you know, uh, they say, I, I love how he finishes here. He says, To answer the question, therefore, affirmatively, as I perceive you have done, and to accept of it as authentic, uh, such an answer is both heathenish, hypocritical, and devilish, and your reward will be according to your works. Now, you'd say, boy, that's unloving to talk like that. <laughs> we would never say that to anybody. Well, Bunyan was different than us. He lived in a different age. He spoke plainly. He told the truth. And so he says, basically, you guys are in huge trouble if this is what you think religion is all about. Now, look what happens. They stood staring upon one another but not and had not wherewith to answer Christian. Hopeful also approved of the soundness of Christian's answer, so there was a great silence among them. They're all walking along in total silence. They can't say a word. And then little by little, Bayans and his friends slow down until there's a big separation between Christian and Hopeful and them. And they're on walking by themselves again. They're stunned in the silence. They cannot answer. Then said Christian to his fellow, If these men cannot stand before the sentence of men, what will they do with the sentence of God? And if they are mute when dealt with by vessels of clay, what will they do when they are rebuked by the flames of the devouring fire? They can't even answer us. How are they going to answer God? It's a very, very serious thing. So that's what they deal with at that point. Now, Christian and Hopeful at that point outwent them again, and they went on till they came to a delicate plain called Ease, where they went with much content, but that plain was but narrow, and they quickly got over it. I think it's very interesting. There's an incredible rhythm in Pilgrim's Progress between difficult things like Vanity Fair and times of comfort like this plain called Ease. The, the times of refreshment are usually brief. They're there. They're put there for the Lord of the journey so that you're not totally wiped out. But one of the things I've noticed, I have to do a careful study of this, after every time of refreshment and ease, they immediately get into trouble through sin. That's one thing I've noticed in every case. I have to, I have to test and see. But after the palace, beautiful, the house where, they, where they're coming down, a Christian enters into uh, the Valley of Humiliation and catches a few slips. That represents some sin. And it made his battle with Apollyon much more difficult as a result. When he was going uphill difficulty, he was in that little peaceful arbor. He rested too long there. You remember, and he left his roll. He had to go back and get it. Here's this plain, play, uh, this plain called Ease. And right after that, it's hopeful that's tempted to leave the way so that he can follow Demas uh, to the silver mine. And that's the next thing that happened. Now, at the further side of that plain was a little hill called Lucre, like filthy lucre. That's what this represents, filthy lucre. And in that hill, there's a silver mine, which some of them that had formally, formally gone that way... Uh, which some of them that had formerly gone that way because of the rarity of it had turned aside to see. But going too near the brink of the pit, the ground being deceitful under them broke and they were slain. Some also had been maimed there and could not to their dying day be their own men again. Now this is the picture I get, if you could kind of picture it in your mind. The way up to the silver mine goes like this and there's like this undercut but you can't see it. You see what I'm saying? 
So the, the, the men walk up like this and travel up until they're standing here, you see? And then the ground gives way and they fall and are killed. So as they're looking, the ground looks stable, it looks solid, it looks secure, it's safe. But as they get further out, it gets more and more dangerous. Paul talks about this in Timothy. He says that people who desire to get rich pierce themselves with many a pang. And that's exactly the desire to get rich. It's what's causing the people to go further and further out along this way. You don't ever know when it's going to break out from under you. And he says some people were killed and others were so maimed they really could never walk very well again. It's a warning against covetousness. Well, it turns out that there's somebody enticing them to go up that way and the man's name is Demas. Now, Demas is a biblical character. You know that. Uh, Demas was a helper to Paul. He's mentioned favorably at the end of many of his letters. But the very end of his correspondence, 2 Timothy 4, Demas is mentioned in this way. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Now, what Demas found in Thessalonica that it was worth trading his soul for, I'll never know. But uh, he deserted Paul. He loved this present world and deserted him. And so Bunyan picks up on Demas and has Demas there as basically a silver mine salesman. So Demas is standing there saying, I've got a great silver mine for you. Why don't you come here and look at it? He says, Ho, turn aside hither and I will show you a thing. Christian said, What thing so deserving as to turn us out of the way to see it? Great question. What, what is there that should get you out of the way? According to Pilgrim's Progress, you're walking along the way. There is a way, a highway of holiness. What is there that should successfully attract you out of that way? What's the answer? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. That is the message of Pilgrim's Progress. Don't leave that way. Don't get out of the way. And so Christian asks the question. He says, what is there we could see that would lead us out of the way? It better be good. Then Demas says, here is a silver mine and some digging in it for treasure. If you will come with, a little, with little pains, you may richly provide for yourselves. Then said hopeful, let us go and see. Did you hear that? Hopeful says, let's go see. I'm ready to go. Christian then says, not I. I have heard of this place before now and how many have there been slain. And besides that, treasure is a snare to those that seek it for it hinders them in their pilgrimage. So hopeful is tempted. He wants to go. Christian holds him back. That's the whole point of in-depth, covenant, committed Christian fellowship. We protect each other from sin. Should, anyway. That's what we're there for. And so Christian pulls him back. And then, later in the account, Christian answers Demas and says, Demas, thou art an enemy to the right ways of the Lord of this way and hast already been condemned for thine own uh, turning aside, by, for thine own turning aside by one of the majesty's judges. And why seekest thou to bring us into the like condemnation? So Christian re rebukes Demas and so in that way saves his fellow um, hopeful. Now, I'm going to skip the next section. Basically, what ends up happening is Bayans and his friend come along, and what do you think happens with them in Demas and Silvermine? Yeah, let's go. You know, big train. Let's get a bus and go. I mean, let's get a truck. And so they are never, basically never seen again, and that's predictable. Um, soon after that, they come to Lot's wife, and I'm skipping again over this section. Basically, they see a statue. It's made of salt. Uh, they can't read, or hopeful can't read it, but Christian can, and it says, remember Lot's wife. Uh, do, do you know that story, Lot's wife? Remember that uh, they were leaving Sodom and Gomorrah and the angel told them what? Don't look back. And what did Lot's wife do? Well, she looked back and what happened to her? She became a pillar of salt while they come across her. Well, there she is. 
Lot's wife. <laughs> you know, in the tape we're listening to, it says, is it made of salt? And there's just pause. Yes, it is. So I wonder if they tasted her. You know, I don't know. But at any rate, yeah, it's pillar salt. And uh, what is the lesson of Lot's wife? Why should we remember Lot's wife? Don't look back. What does looking back signify? Loving the world. Isn't it all the same lesson over and over? Vanity Fair, Bayans and all his friends, Demas in the silver mine, Lot's wife. I mean, Bunyan's kind of hammering on it here, isn't it? Remember Lot's wife. Don't look back. There's nothing in Sodom for you. What do you want in Sodom? There's nothing there for you. And then Hopeful realizes, you know, he says, you know, Christian says to him, he says, Ah, my brother, this is a seasonable sight. It came opportunely to us after the invitation which Demas gave us to come over to view the hill Lucre. And had we gone over as he desired us and as thou were inclining to do, my brother, hmm, we had for aught I know been made ourselves like this woman, a spectacle for those that shall come after to behold. So he gently reminds him, you wanted to go. And God could have turned us into a pillar of salt too if we had gone. I'm sorry, said Hopeful, that I was so foolish and am made to wonder that I am now as Lot's wife. For wherein was the difference betwixt her sin and mine? She only looked back, and I had a desire to go see. Let grace be adored, and let me be ashamed that ever such a thing um, should be in my heart. Now, after that, they come along a way. Uh, I'm going to skip to the next section. It says that they went on their way to a pleasant river, which David the king called the river of God, but John the river of the water of life. Now, their way lay just upon the bank of the river, and here, therefore, Christian and his companion walked with great delight, and they drank also of the water of the river, which was pleasant and enlivening to their weary spirits. Besides, on the banks of this river on either side were green trees that bore all manner of fruit, and the leaves of the trees were good for medicine. With the fruit of those trees they were also much delighted. And in this meadow they lay down and slept, for here uh, they might lie down safely. And when they awoke, they gathered again of the fruit of the trees and drank again of the water of the river and then lay down again to sleep. This they did several days and nights. So it's a time of tremendous refreshment because their way lies right along this river and there's trees and there's just things to eat and it's just very pleasant and soothing to them. And they're very refreshed. And they're there for several days. And so when they were disposed to go on, for they were not as yet at their journey's end, I love that, Bunyan reminds them they're still traveling to go. You can't live in that pleasant area, okay? It's just meant for temporary refreshment so that you can keep going in your journey, okay? They're not yet at their journey's end. They ate and drank, and they departed. Now comes, in my opinion, the most severe trial that they're ever going to have. In the whole, in the whole journey, this is Christian's toughest, toughest time. Now I beheld in my dream that they had not journeyed far, but the river and the way for a time parted, at which they were not a little sorry, Yet they dared not go out of the way. Now the way from the river was rough, and their feet were tender by reason of their travels. So the souls of the pilgrims were much discouraged because of the way. Wherefore, still as they went on, they wished for a better way. Now a little before them, there was on the left-hand side of the road a meadow and a stile, that means a gate, to go over into it. And that meadow is called Bypath Meadow. Then said Christian to his fellow, if this meadow lieth along by our wayside, let us go over into it. Then he went to the stile, to the gate, to see. And behold, a path lay along the way on the other side of the fence. It is according to my wish, said Christian. Here is the easiest going. Come, good hopeful, let us go over. This is Christian now saying this. 
Isn't it amazing how quickly things change? It was Christian uh, that stood up against Bayans. It was Christian that stood up against all his friends. It was Christian that refuted Demas and protected Hopeful. And now it's Christian that's saying to Hopeful, hey, let's jump over the fence and walk alongside for a while. It's more comfortable. If any man thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. At this particular moment, Christian is the one tempting Hopeful. (laughs) Hopeful answers, but how if this path should lead us out of the way? That's a good question. You know, it looks like it goes alongside for a while, but what if it starts to divert and go a different direction? What then? That is not likely, said Christian. Look, does it not go along by the wayside? So Hopeful, being persuaded by his fellow, went after him over the stile, and when they were gone over, they found they got into the path, and they found it very easy for their feet. And uh, with all they, looking before them, spied a man walking as they did, and his name was Vain Confidence. So they called after him and asked him uh, whither that way led. He said, to the celestial gate. Look, said Christian, did I not tell you? By this you may see that we are right. So they followed and he went before them. But behold, the night came on and it grew very dark so that they were, uh, that they were, that were behind lost sight of the one that was ahead. Now what happens is they jump over the fence and they get into this path and they're walking along the way. And it's going pretty much following the pilgrim way. But they don't notice that little by little it's getting further away. And then suddenly they see a man up there and the man's name is Vain Confidence. And he says, where does it go? He says, right to the celestial gate. And he said, great. And so they don't even worry anymore about the path that they've left. And they're just following this other way, following Vain Confidence. He therefore that went before Vain Confidence by, by name, not seeing the way before him, fell into a deep pit which was on purpose there made by the prince of those grounds to catch vainglorious fools. And he was dashed in pieces by his fall. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. This man had no clue where he was going, but he was full of confidence. (laughs) I mean, he was like, let's go. And he's zooming ahead. And so Christian and Hopeful aren't even thinking anymore where they're going. And they followed him. And he falls into a pit. Now Christian and his fellow heard him fall, so they called to know the matter. But there was none to answer, only they heard groaning. Then said Hopeful, where are we now? Then was his fellow silent, as mistrusting that he had led him out of the way. And now then it began to rain and to thunder and to lightning in a very dreadful manner, and the water rose greatly. Then Hopeful groaned in himself, saying, Oh, that I had kept on my way. Do you hear what Hopeful says? Oh, that I had kept on my way. He doesn't say our way. He says, why did I listen to you? He said, I knew what was right. I should never have left the way. Why did you tempt me? And so he says, I wish I had never left the way. I knew better. Oh, that I'd never, oh, that I'd kept on my way. And Christian said, who could have thought that this path should have led us out of the way? Hopeful answered, I was afraid on it at the very first and therefore gave you that gentle caution. I would have spoke plainer, but that you are older than I. Good brother, said Christian, be not offended. I am sorry that I have brought thee out of the way. And that I have put thee into such imminent danger. Pray, my brother, forgive me. I did not do it of an evil intent. Hopeful said, Be comforted, my brother, for I do forgive you. And believe that this too shall be for our good. Christian said, I am glad I have with me such a merciful brother. But we must not stand thus. Let us try to go back again. But good brother, said Hopeful, let me go ahead of you. No, if you please, let me go first, that if there be any danger, I may be first therein. Because by my means, we are both gone out of the way. Hopeful answered, No, you shall not go first, for your mind being troubled may lead you out of the way again. 
Then for their encouragement they heard a voice of one saying, Set your heart toward the highway, even the way which you went, turn again. By this time the waters were greatly risen, by reason of which the going back was very dangerous. Now here comes a key line. You can underline this if you're into writing in books. Then I thought that it is easier going out of the way when we're in it than getting back in when we're out. I tell you what, this is one of the lasting lessons for me at Pilgrim's Progress. And I, many times I, I felt distant from the Lord in my Christian life. And I know why and I know what's happened, but I don't know how to get back. I don't know how to get that closeness back, that sense of the Lord's love, the sense of the fruitfulness, the sense of the filling of the Spirit. And I resolve, I say, if I can ever get back there again, I'll never leave the way again. Have you ever said that? In a sense, like if I'm ever close to the Lord, if He'd ever be gracious to me again and answer my prayers the way it used to be, and that I would love walking with Him again, I would never trade it for all the gold in the world, for anything. I would not leave the way. But it's hard to get back, isn't it? It's hard to get back. And actually, the more accustomed you are to leaving the way, the harder it is to get back. It's easier to get out of the way when in it, to get back in the way when out of it. Yet they had ventured to go back, but it was so dark and the flood was so high that in their going back they had liked to, be, to have been drowned nine or ten times. Neither could they, with all the skill they had, get back again to the stile that night. Wherefore at last, lighting under a little shelter, they sat down there until the daybreak, but being weary they fell asleep." Now, it's my interpretation of Pilgrim's Progress that this was another sinful sleep. I think they should not have stopped. I think they should have kept going. And when you see what happens, you'll probably agree with me. You can say, well, why? I mean, they were exhausted. But you remember when he got out of the way before, right at the beginning of his journey, when he went over to Mount Sinai, remember, to uh, morality, and Evangelist comes back and basically scares the bejeebers out of him, and he says, you, you know, God is willing to forgive, but you better get yourself back in that road he went back and there would be nothing that would deter him from getting back in the road, remember? So he went and ignored any other thing until he was back in the correct way and walking again. Well, these guys are so exhausted that they lay down to rest instead of getting back in the way. And let's see what happens. Now, there was, not far from the place where they lay, a castle called Doubting Castle. The owner whereof was Giant Despair. And it was in his grounds that they were now sleeping. Wherefore, he getting up in the morning early and walking up and down in his fields, caught Christian and hopeful asleep in his grounds. Then with a grim and surly voice, he bid them awake and asked them whence they were and what they did in his grounds. They told him they were pilgrims and that they had lost their way. Then said the giant, you have this night trespassed on me by trampling in and lying on my grounds and therefore you must go along with me. So they were forced to go because he was stronger than they. They also had but little to say, for they knew themselves in a fault. The giant therefore drove them before him and put them into his castle, into a very dark dungeon, nasty and stinking to the spirits of these two men. Here then they lay from Wednesday morning till Saturday night without one bit of bread or drop of drink or light or any to ask how they did. They were therefore here in evil, ca evil case and were far from friends and acquaintance. Now, in this place, Christian had double sorrow because it was through his unadvised counsel that they were brought into this distress. This is a very, very terrible trial. Now, see if you can trace out what's happened. What led them out of the path to begin with? Think about it. Say again. Their feet were sore. The way was tough. The Christian way was tough. And they wanted a little bit easier. And they reasoned. They thought... This way runs alongside that way. 
Let's do it this way. This way is a little better, a little more comfortable, you see? But they don't notice that little by little it leads further and further away from the true way. Then they follow vain confidence. They begin to think, hey, I think I know what I'm doing here. You see what I'm saying? They get cocky. They get full of themselves. And they run even further and more quickly away. Now they realize their error, but they can't get back. And they try and labor to get back. And what happens along the way? Despair and doubt and discouragement. You see what happens? It's an incredible study of the inner heart. Puritans were great psychologists. They really were. They were looking inwardly all the time and trying to find out what's happening. Now giant despair has got them. They're in, in, in Doubting Castle. And how are they going to get out? Now, Giant Despair had a wife, and her name was Diffidence. <laughs> now, when he was gone to bed, he told his wife what he had done, to wit that he had taken a couple of prisoners and cast them into his dungeon for trespassing on his grounds. Then he asked her also what he had best to do further to them. So she asked him where they were and whence they came, whither they were bound, and he told her. Then she counseled him that when he arose in the morning that he should beat them without any mercy. So when he arose, he getteth him a grievous crab-tree cudgel and goes down into the dungeon to them and there first falls to rating of them as if they were dogs, although they never gave him a word of distaste. Then he falls upon them and beats them fearfully in such sort that they were not able to help themselves or to turn themselves on the floor. This done, he withdraws and leaves them there to condole their misery and there to mourn under their distress." So all that day they spent that time in nothing but sighs and bitter lamentations. The next night she, that means diffidence, talking with her husband about them further and understanding that they were yet alive, did advise him to counsel them to make away themselves. Let's put that in modern language, to commit suicide. To counsel them that they should commit suicide. So when morning was come, he goes to them in a surly manner as before and perceiving them to be very sore with the stripes that he had given them the day before, he told them that since they were like never to come out of that place, their only way would be forthwith to make an end of themselves, either with a knife or a rope or poison. For why, said he, should you choose life, seeing that it is attended with so much bitterness? But they desired him to let them go. With that, he looked ugly upon them and rushing to them had doubtless made an end of them himself, but that he fell into one of his fits for sometimes in sunshiny weather he fell into fits and lost for a time the use of his hand, wherefore he withdrew and left them as before to consider what to do. Then did the prisoners consult between themselves whether it was best to, to take his counsel or no, and thus they began to discourse. What are they talking about? Whether or not to kill themselves. Isn't that incredible? You can get to such a point of despair and discouragement that this is even on your mind. How long ago before that were they laying in that comfortable place where those trees were there for the healing of the nations and the river of life flowing through and they're just strong and ready to go? And now they're contemplating suicide. Incredible. Brother, said Christian, shall we do it? The life that we now live is miserable. For my part, I know not whether it is best to live thus or to die out of hand. Hopeful answered, indeed, our present condition is dreadful. And death would be far more welcome to me than thus forever to abide. But yet, let us consider the Lord of the country to which we are going hath said, Thou shalt do no murder. No, not to another man's person. Much more then are we forbidden to take the, his counsel and kill ourselves. Besides, he that kills another can but commit murder upon his body. 
but for one to kill himself is to kill both body and soul at once. And moreover, my brother, thou talkest of ease in the grave, but hast thou forgotten the hell whither for certain the murderers go? For no murderer has eternal life. And let us then consider again that all the law is not in the hand of giant despair. Now here's where hopeful shines. I love this. Others, so far as I can understand, have been taken by him as well as we, and yet have escaped out of his hand. Who knows but that God, the God that made the world, may cause that giant despair may die. <laughs> or, or that at some time or other he may forget to lock us in. Or, or that he may in a short time have, have another one of his fits before us and may lose the use of his limbs. And if ever that should come to pass, again, I, for my part, am ready to pluck up the heart of a man and to try my utmost to get out from under his hand. I was a fool that I did not try to do it before, but however, my brother, let us be patient and endure a while. Do you see what hopeful is doing here? Well, he's being hopeful. <laughs> he's saying maybe we'll escape. He's speaking hope to his brother. It makes all the difference, doesn't it, to have a brother in Christ or a sister at this key moment, somebody who will take an interest in your life. I don't know how non-Christians do it, you know, people who aren't in churches, who don't have people around them to give them good counsel. I guess in some cases they actually commit suicide. It's tragic, but here Hopeful is speaking hope to his brother. The time may come that may give us a happy release, but let us not be our own murderers. With these words, Hopeful at present did moderate the mind of his brother so that they continued together in the dark that day in their sad and doleful condition. Well, towards evening, the giant goes down into the dungeon again to see if his prisoners had taken his counsel. But when he came down there, he found them alive. And truly, alive was all. For now, what for want of bread and water and by reason of the wounds that they had received, he, when he beat them, they could do but little but breathe. But I say he found them alive, at which he fell into a grievous rage and told, told them that seeing that they had disobeyed his counsel, it should be worse with them than if they had never been born. At this they trembled greatly, and I think that Christian fell into a swoon. But coming a little to himself again, they renewed their discourse about the giant's counsel and whether yet they had best to take it or not. Now Christian again seemed to be foredoing it. So Christian again persisting, thinking about committing suicide. But Hopeful made his second reply as follows. My brother, said he, remember. <laughs> That's the key. By the way, this is biblical counsel. You look at Psalm 42. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so discouraged within me? Put your hope in God. And then he goes over the past of what God has done. Faithfulness. The faithfulness of God. He says, Remember how valiant you have been heretofore. Apollyon could not crush thee, nor could all that thou didst hear or see or feel in the valley of the shadow of death. What hardship, terror, and amazement hast thou already gone through? And art thou now uh, nothing but fear? Thou seest that I am in the dungeon with thee, a far weaker man by nature than thou art. Also this giant has wounded me as well as thee, and hath also cut off bread and water from my mouth. And with thee I mourn without the light. But let us exercise a little more patience. Remember how thou playedst the man at Vanity Fair, and was neither afraid of the chain nor cage, nor yet a bloody death. Wherefore let us at least to avoid the shame that becomes not a Christian to be found in, bear up with patience as well as we can. I just love hopeful, don't you? He's just saying, look at what you've already been through. God's been faithful. You've been courageous. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Counseling with him. Now, night being come again and the giant and his wife being in bed. You know, these two are interesting, aren't they? I mean, they really get along well. Despair and diffidence. I mean, they have kind of a good marriage if it weren't for this little habit of wanting to crush and destroy pilgrims. 
Now night being come again, and the giant and his wife being in bed, she asked him concerning the prisoners, if they had taken his counsel. To which he replied, They are sturdy rogues. They choose rather to bear all hardship than to make away themselves. Then, said she, take them into the castle yard tomorrow, and show them the bones and skulls of those thou hast already dispatched, and make them believe, ere a week comes to an end, that thou wilt also tear them in pieces as thou hast done their fellows before them. So despair shows them the courtyard, all the bones and all that, and says, within ten days, this is going to be you. Despair just wants one thing, doesn't he? He wants them to kill themselves. He's already beaten them up mercilessly. And by the way, that's his, that's his middle name, is Merciless. There's absolutely no mercy in this guy. He lives for their suffering and pain and torment. And they're not, not going to be any mercy from Despair and Downing Castle. Well, the turning point comes. On Saturday about midnight, they began to pray and continued in prayer till almost break of day. Where did that come from? I think it came from Hopeful. <laughs> hey, I know. Let's pray. And as they're praying, a little before day, good Christian, as one half amazed, break out in this passionate speech. What a fool, quoth he, am I, to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will I am persuaded open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that is good news, good brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try it's been there the whole time. <laughs> it's been there the whole time. But it's only when they turn to God in prayer that he remembers. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door whose bolts, as he turned the key, gave back. And the door flew open with ease. And Christian and Hopeful both came out. Then he went to the outward door that leads into the castle yard and with his key opened that door also. After he went to the iron gate, for that must also be open too, but that lock went, I'm going to read here, damnable hard. Yet the key did open it. Then they thrust open the gate to make their escape with speed. But that gate as it opened made such a creaking that it waked giant despair, who hastily rising to pursue his prisoners felt his limbs to fail for his fits took him in again <laughs> so that he could by no means go after them. Then they went on and came to the king's highway and so were safe because they were out of his jurisdiction. Isn't that wonderful? What gets them out? God's promise, the word of God. And they trust his promises. And his promise meets any lock that they face. I guess the key changes shape with each lock or something. And as they turn it, even though one of them was extremely hard, yet the key bore the weight of their trust. And every gate was open. Now, when they were gone over the stile, they began to contrive with themselves what they should do at that style to prevent those that should come after from falling into the hands of giant despair. So they consented to erect there a pillar and to engrave upon the side thereof this sentence. Over this style is the way to Doubting Castle, which is kept by giant despair, who despiseth the king of the celestial country and seeks to destroy his holy pilgrims. Many, therefore, that followed after read what was written and escaped the danger. This done, they sang as follows. Out of the way we went, and then we found what t'was to tread upon forbidden ground. And let them that come after have a care, lest heedlessness make them as we to fare, lest they for trespassing his prisoners are whose castles doubting and whose names despair. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the good lessons that we've had tonight from Pilgrim's Progress. We thank you for the fact that Christian and Hopeful made a brotherly covenant together to help each other. 
I praise you for that brotherly covenant. And I thank you for how Christian helped uh, Hopeful not to be destroyed uh, at Demas's filthy hill. I thank you for how Hopeful reached out for his brother Christian time and again in Doubting Castle and would not let him give in to despair. I thank you also for the lessons we learned from Bayans and from his, his friends that we are not to follow you, Lord Jesus, when it uh, just benefits us in the world and gets us material gain or popularity, but that we would walk with you even if wind and tide is against us and even if in rags and in uh, shackles. Father, we thank you that in this world we will have trouble, but you have overcome the world, Lord Jesus, and that we look forward to our true and final resting place, the celestial city. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here that have come to study tonight. I pray that they would be faithful this week to stay in the way. And that if we um, see any that are wandering away from you, O Lord, that we would, with humility, with brokenness, with gentleness, go and retrieve them and bring them back in the way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.